The Irish Passport Podcast wishes to thank our wonderful sponsors, BiddyMurphy.com. Biddy Murphy is an online shop for genuine Irish goods that are made in Ireland, founded to bring the best of Ireland to the world by Tipperary man Ward Gahan. You can find jewellery in traditional Irish designs, fantastic woven products, and those iconic Irish flat caps, and all manner of artwork and gifts over at BiddyMurphy.com. Do check it out. Hello, welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, Let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Okay, well to Naomi. Anwar Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh I'm recording. One, One, two, two, three. three. Okay. Welcome back to the circus, Naomi. Yep. It's time to talk about Brexit again. Over the last few weeks, things have been heating up over the possibility of a catastrophic no-deal scenario, which means Britain crashing out of the European Union on the 31st of October with nothing agreed. And we're here to explain what the continued uncertainty about the outcome and the prospect of that disastrous no-deal means for Ireland and Northern Ireland. Over the next two episodes, we're going to be bringing you voices from Belfast and Derry, areas which have found themselves in the eye of the storm when it comes to the Brexit fallout, and which stand to suffer the most from a potential no-deal exit. In our next episode, we'll be speaking to people whose very livelihoods could come crashing down in the case of a no-deal. In this first instalment, though, we're going to look at where the stakes are highest when it comes to Northern Ireland and the Irish border and what people who live there think of the political circus in Westminster that's been dominating headlines for quite some time. So, later on the show, Naomi will travel to a Remain event in Belfast City, where passions were running high on all sides. Sinn Féin, of course, are threatening. Republic's coming! We'll also hear from journalist Alison Morris, who explains why the very idea of a hard border is an incredibly powerful piece of propaganda for those who would like to reignite violence in Northern Ireland. If they had exploded a, a bomb somewhere, it would have got the attention of people like me would have had to report on it. But you wouldn't have had foreign journalists come to report on it. Brexit's changed that. They see a propaganda value in that. And what they also say is the talk of putting infrastructure at that border, the, the talk of putting any kind of checks at that border... Well, that re-emphasizes partition in the eyes of very young people. I'll also be quizzing Naomi about her recent cloak and dagger interview with loyalist paramilitaries. I'm saying nothing, Tim. (laughs) Then later on, perhaps most seriously of all, we'll hear from a doctor in Derry about why a badly executed Brexit might have extremely high stakes for those suffering from serious illnesses. Um, quite a few of these medications for instance there's a particular company with manufacturers of this all in France but the real concern was um, in some pump consumables and the PHA advised us to advise our patients to keep a six month supply in advance and to order that in advance which is a significant logistical issue if we have an imminent Brexit in a matter of six weeks. So Naomi to get started let's get up to date on what the hell is going on. Um, since our last Brexit update, a long time ago now it feels, Boris Johnson has taken over leadership of the UK's Conservative Party. It seems like almost every day he's managed to create some kind of media roller coaster. Uh, we've seen in recent times the suspension of Parliament, or the proroguing, to use the vocabulary of the day, and then its potential unsuspension. Uh, everyone found out about the existence of a curious entity known as, I quote, the Lady Usher of the Black Rod. And <laughs> Naomi, <laughs> as an aside, um, the very existence of that title means that no one in the British media is ever allowed to complain about having to say the two-syllable word Taoiseach ever again. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> allowing it. Um, we've also heard accusations of Johnson lying to the Queen. Lots of talk about him preferring to, quote, die in a ditch than to accept another extension to the Brexit deadline. And then seemingly endless footage of him avoiding angry protesters wherever he goes. So all of this is, to say the least, pretty loud and pretty colourful. But at the end of the day, Naomi, has Johnson actually done anything Uh, to make Brexit more feasible. So it's important to understand that all of this is Westminster focused. It's all happening in London. Um, It has limited relevance outside of the Westminster bubble and people around the world and also the even the other partners in the EU are pretty much tuning out of it at this stage. It's kind of bleakly amusing, but it doesn't add anything to progress in the negotiations. So the fundamentals remain the same as ever And according to the EU, 
there are no negotiations happening. So Boris Johnson's team have yet to make any concrete proposals for discussion. So if he's talking about progress, um, perhaps he's talking about progress within the Westminster bubble, but he's not talking about progress with the EU partners because there just simply aren't negotiations going on. This is all internal Westminster drama. And the EU has basically thrown up its hand. You know, the EU 27 have essentially said, this isn't our problem to solve. It's your move. You have to figure out what you want and come back to us. Okay, right. So that said, then let's leave the theatrics aside um, and get down to brass tacks. So lots of commentators over the last few weeks, especially have surmised three potential outcomes by October 31st. So number one is that Johnson goes back to the deal that Theresa May negotiated with the EU or something very similar to it, maybe under a different name. Uh, Number two, that the EU and the UK agree to postpone Brexit again. Or number three, that the UK really will crash out with no deal on October 31st, making, I suppose, for a pretty scary Halloween. How plausible do each of those options look to you right now? So in some sense, it's difficult to judge because it depends on how you interpret Johnson's motivations. Um, So everybody's kind of trying to interpret what he's doing. Is his real plan, does he really think he can get something at the 11th hour, some concession out of the EU and save the day? Or does he actually want an election and to delay Brexit after that? Or is his real plan to purposefully run down the clock and leave without a deal, which is what some Brexit hardliners want, after all? Now, he may not be aware that he's restricted by what's possible. He may have ideas in his mind that actually aren't possible. Or it's difficult to know as outsiders what's really going on there. We know that a unicorn deal doesn't exist. So it can't be that suddenly something impossible will materialise. And it's, it's worth bearing in mind that these agreements are very weighty, technical, you know, written documents. So negotiating them and understanding them even uh, takes time, never mind, you know, agreeing on them. And right now, time is very, very short. All of the remaining EU states have just said at this point they are preparing for no deal. That's their base case scenario because they essentially can't afford not to. So everyone is preparing for that as their base assumption, including Ireland. Um, And this has really big consequences for Ireland. So for example, the Dublin government has adopted a no deal budget, which essentially means that rather than the government having money to spend, um, to to spend back into the economy, at this point, there's tons of areas that are crying out for it, not least, you know, education, healthcare, because remember, Ireland's gone through years of austerity. So rather than being able to do that, which it thought it would be able to do, Instead, it's planning that it'll take such an economic hit from a no-deal Brexit that they'll have no money to spend at all and they'll actually have to go into deficit. So this is having real concrete consequences already across the Republic, never mind in other countries. Right, sure. And you can almost kind of feel the heat of fuming coming from Dublin at the moment. Yeah. Um, but of course, you know, further north, then uh, more seriously, no matter which way you look at it, this seems like it's all going down pretty badly in Northern Ireland. Um, lots of unionists, uh, including the DUP, were pretty hostile to May's deal back in the day, since it included that famous backstop, which they consider to weaken the union with Britain. Remainers and leavers alike have very little appetite at the same time for another extension, since that would mean more uncertainty, and more uncertainty means that they don't know how to plan for business and plan for the future. Um, Of course, no one actually knows what the fallout from a no-deal could be, but according to a recently leaked UK government document, which is known as Yellowhammer, it would mean rationing, stockpiling and significant rioting. Perhaps we can start by looking at the renewed potential for violence in Northern Ireland. I spoke to Alison Morris, who is security correspondent with the Irish News. Let's hear what she had to say. I'm Alison Morris and I'm the security correspondent and a columnist with the Irish News based in Belfast. Um, We would be the largest selling nationalist daily newspaper in Northern Ireland. And in terms of your brief of security, what's the trend that's that you're reporting on? What are the trends that you're seeing on the ground? So we have seen an increase in tempo of distant Republican attacks. There's no doubt about that. There's been seven attempts to kill police since the start of this year. We know that one of those attempts Shots were fired at police that happened to hit um, the, the journalist, Larry McKee, who was, who was standing beside a, a police chief. Um, those attacks 
would have happened anyway and we were having having those sort of attacks anyway but maybe not at the pace that they have and i think to be clear distant republicanism is not aligned to Sinn Féin and that they would not be remainers most hardline republicans if you'd have asked them before brexit would never have been in favor of eu membership they seen that as an attack on irish sovereignty but what distance are now thinking is they're seeing propaganda value in it. So whereas if they had have exploded a, a bomb somewhere, it would have got the attention of people like me would have had to report on it. But you wouldn't have had foreign journalists coming to report on it. Brexit's changed that. They see a propaganda value in that. And what they also see is the talk of putting infrastructure at that border, the, the talk of putting any kind of checks at that border, well, that re-emphasises partition in the eyes of very young people. So we have an entire generation who were born into peace, who are, you know, 18, 19, 20 years of age, they've never known a border. When I wanted to cross that border when I was young, we were stopped at the checkpoint, everyone had to get out of the car, the car would have been searched by soldiers, you know, seats would have been lifted up, suitcases would have been opened, it would have took a long time. Now, you know, my children cross the border, one of my children works in Dublin, she comes up and down, you've seen it yourself, it just doesn't exist, you know, the road surface doesn't even change anymore, basically all you know is miles change to kilometres, and that's the only reason you'll know. Um, but if you start putting infrastructure in that, it gives them a propaganda value. So then they can reinforce partition mm-hmm. in the minds of a generation who didn't know the troubles, who didn't know conflict. They can reinforce, you know, this island is occupied. There is the visible proof of it. There it is. It's at the border. There's those checkpoints. And so they've seen that there's propaganda in that and they've been using that to recruit very young people into their ranks. We know this to be the case because we know from the, the age of the people who are being arrested as suspects who are showing up at protests and marches and commemorations and events that the the political wings of these organisations are organising are getting younger and younger. You can see that very clearly in in Derry, in the streets of Craigan, that there's very young men involved. So if you think back to after the the Good Friday Agreement in 1998, there was a breakup in the provisional IRA and that formed the real IRA. Those people were disgruntled provisionals who were not in favour of the peace process. Those would be men who would have to be in their 50s, or 60s now, those people don't exist anymore. The leadership of the dissident Republican organisations at this stage are in their 40s, some in their late 30s, and the membership are in their teens and in their 20s. And that should concern everyone, because that is the people who are meant to be benefiting from the peace. This was meant to be our peace generation, and instead there's still people in places such as Lurgan, in West and North Belfast, in Derry, who are being sucked into these organisations. They may not be the greatest threat to security at this point in time because they're very young and very inexperienced. They're not going to be 15 forever. They're not going to be 16 forever. In 10 or 15 years' time, if we don't get a handle of this on this and get some sort of resolution to what's going to happen with Brexit, that could, and the history of this island shows that violence comes in cycles, and that could develop into something much more sinister, and that's something that I'm concerned about a lot. And how about on the loyalist side? What's the reality of loyalist paramilitaries now? Loyalist paramilitaries are very fractured, so there wouldn't be one organisation under one umbrella. So what you would have is they're like a series of little fiefdoms, if you like. So almost like criminal gangs with their own leadership. And there's no one umbrella group who controls all, all of those. So some would be much more involved in, in peaceful activities and some would be much more involved in criminal activities. What Brexit has also done, and this is a, another completely and utterly accidental, non-explained consequence of that, is that it has advanced the calls for a border poll. So we were always going to have, as part of the Good Friday Agreement, it's it's written in that there should be a border poll when the Secretary of State or when the British government thinks that the a majority of people would vote in favour of it. That was maybe going to happen. I didn't think it was going to happen in my lifetime. I thought maybe, you know, after I was long gone, maybe in my children's lifetime there would be a border poll. The demographics are changing. There's basically there's more young Catholic people than there is unionists than there is Protestants. So eventually the demographics would have changed to the point where you could see there would have been a border poll. But now what's happening is those conversations are taking place already. So they've probably been brought forward maybe by 10, 15, 20 years because people are saying if this is going to be an economic wasteland after Brexit, if we're going to suffer because of the, the British government's inability to find a resolution to this problem, then why don't we look at, at unity? And it's not unity like you would have heard from, you know, if people singing IRA songs in bars. It's not that kind of unity. This is unity with Europe. It's not, you know, a united Ireland, a nation once again. This is, would we be economically better off as a, an all-island economy within the EU or would we be better off as we are? And that's a very different conversation and I think that that's what unionists are worried about. And so we have to remember that there are a population of very young, very angry young loyalist men. They're known to have, um, if you look at the statistics each year, 
year in, year out. There is low educational achievement, especially among young Protestant men. There is no industries here that would have been traditionally the places where they would have sought long-term stable employment. We don't have shipbuilding as we once did, all of those sort of things. So there are people who have very low employment prospects and who have found themselves at home, if you like, within those loyalist paramilitary groups. The peace process was a process and it was a compromise, but it has now been painted as a loss. And that's interesting too, because we do have the largest unionist party as the DUP, the party who are now at Westminster and we're hearing about how Brexit could affect the Good Friday Agreement and affect our peace. The DUP voted against the Good Friday Agreement. They were completely against it. They refused to go into the first storming. So we have like the, the voices that are being heard loudest who are meant to protect our peace process were, if you went back to 1998, actually against our peace process. They didn't agree with it. They saw it as a sellout at that stage. Do you think that, that something like the backstop has become too powerful as a symbol to ever be acceptable now? I think that what Boris Johnson's going to have to do is change the name of the backstop. Because there has to be some kind of backstop within that withdrawal agreement that you've already said that. But I don't think that we can call it the backstop anymore because that in itself just inflames and enrages people. It became <laughs> such a symbol. So, I mean, we have always said, you know, it'd be the backstop with a bit of lipstick on it and, and dressed yeah. up and changed to something else. Um, Boris Johnson's promised people he's going to deliver Brexit back to the 31st. The only thing that's preventing him from doing that is Northern Ireland. And I think that that is why we're now seeing a change in language with regards to all Ireland agricultural maybe arrangements and some change in that. A border in the in the, in the the sea was always the most sensible option because goods are checked at, at ports and, and, and seaports and airports anyway. People are easily more, more easily managed in those circumstances as well. The DP were deeply opposed to that, but I mean, I think in reality, if we look at the practicalities of it, Operation Yellowhammer report said no checks at all is unsustainable long term. There will have to be checks basically for food safety, for bio, for biosafety and all sorts of other things. You cannot have things back and forward crossing into two different jurisdictions across the border. Um, but has two different customs arrangements with no checks on it. It's just, just we know this and, you know, you're stating the obvious, but it is unsustainable long term. But if those people start operating around that border, whether it's on it or five miles in from it or wherever they have to hold those checks, they will become a target. And that is just the reality of it. I think a really interesting point that Alison brought up there was how lots of dissident Republicans might not themselves be particularly fond of the EU, uh, but they're using the divisions caused by Brexit to breed anxiety about the border in people's minds. And in that respect, I suppose you could say that Brexit has already done significant damage to the peace process, even though it hasn't actually happened yet. Having spent some time reporting in Northern Ireland, the sense of the damage already done is possibly the strongest impression that I took away from it. Pretty much everyone I spoke to said that it had been the worst few months in terms of intercommunity tensions for, that they could remember, sometimes in their lifetimes. So we're talking about since, you know, since the conflict. The circumstances seem to be unpicking things that were settled. So people's acceptance of the peace as a deal. It's really dividing communities and... I mean, it's just very concerning for anyone who's facing the consequences of that. By the way, uh, listeners, if you would like to hear the full 30-minute interview with Alison, we'll be publishing it in full for our Patreon supporters. And if you're not a patron yet, you can sign up right now to support the podcast and access our full archive of extra content. Just head on over to www.patreon.com forward slash the Irish passport. But anyway, Naomi, you headed over to a Remain event that was being held in Belfast City recently to hear what people had to say. So before we hear that, could you tell us a bit what the atmosphere was like there? Yeah, so I arrived a bit early before the event got underway and there was this minor kind of scene developing outside uh, where there were, there were some pro-Brexit protesters, three of them, and some rival um, people who had arrived for the event who were pro-EU and had on uh, yellow t-shirts that were actually for the Alliance Party, but very much recalled the yellow t-shirts of the Lib Dems. They have similar positions. And it was pretty calm, but there was quite a police presence around and a couple of PSNI riot vans. They look quite serious if you're not used to them because they're very much, you know, fortified riot vans and they have various equipment. But it's actually pretty normal, like they're just uh, standard police equipment in Northern Ireland. And I thought that maybe the pretty visible police presence might be because of the prominent politicians who were coming. But later on, 
I heard the sound of pipes in the distance and I found out that the road was being closed. So it seems that actually the police were juggling this event with the imminent arrival of a loyalist band parade, which kind of shows you, you know, the randomness and variety of stuff that they're dealing with. But anyway, something that I thought was particularly interesting was the pro-Brexit protesters. One of them um, who we'll hear from was wearing a Trump hat and was openly a UKIP supporter and there were two men with him who wouldn't identify themselves but they told me that one of them was from the Republic one of them was you know an Irish guy from the Republic and they were all carrying bags of the Party for European Freedom and Direct Democracy which is UKIP's party in the European Parliament what I thought was curious about that was it looked the way they were carrying these bags it looked like they'd just come from a conference and they'd been given them for free and they were full of some kind of literature Um, But I don't know how they got them. But to me, it was a symbol of the involvement of international money and promotion of the kind of international right wing. And that was the first sign of something like that that I saw, but it wasn't to be the last. So I can tell you more about that later. Once the event got started, um, it wasn't an enormous crowd. It was a few hundred. It was inside like a kind of theater hall called the Ulster Hall. But you could really sense the emotion that people had. Like several speakers got standing ovations and people broke out into really loud, spontaneous applause, sometimes drowning out the speakers. And the, the moments when that happened seemed to be when people expressed their personal kind of amusement and confusion and frustration that this kind of illogical thing that was so damaging was happening and express their concerns about the peace process. Okay, so let's go right ahead and hear from some of the people that you spoke to at that event. Um, my name is Derry Four. I'm 24 years old, years old and I'm from Newry and I'm a co-founder of Our Future, Our Choice, Northern Ireland. Um, so my name's Aaron Hughes, um, I'm 17 and I'm from West Belfast and I'm also a co-founder for, of Our Future, Our Choice, Northern Ireland. So during the Brexit referendum I was only about 15 and for me, looking into the future, Brexit was so detrimental from what I could see. Um, before before the Brexit I didn't have no interest in politics and then once I read in the Brexit and what it had the implications for me, I began to believe that I need to get involved. For me, the European Union is, is provides a lot for young people, opportunities. I, a lot of my past is in cross-community youth work and a lot of programmes I do is funded through the European Union. And those programmes, they may be gone post-Brexit, um, Erasmus, the, the rights to travel, my rights as an Irish citizen, me and my friends, have, some of my friends have British passports, so that implication of them, me and my friends being treated differently to Definitely each other. Aaron and I, I have a British passport and Aaron has an Irish passport and we kind of will joke and say, you know, post-Brexit, he might have more rights than me, but in a really serious, like in an actual situation of life, that could potentially be true because obviously under the Good Friday Agreement, you're allowed to identify as British, Irish or both. But because I have a British passport, I'm not going to have less rights than somebody with an Irish one. And that's, you know, that Brexit is to blame for that at this stage. So I think in terms of politics in general, Brexit has completely swept every other political thing on the agenda to the, to, to the, to the side. And that is absolutely disastrous. Our, our health service is in an absolute crisis. Our education system has fallen apart. And now we're just talking about Brexit. And something that has been going on for three years, and it's more likely the last for another 10 years and where it's going now. So obviously that impacts absolutely everyone in this country and every, every citizen, regardless if you voted Leave or Remain. Every other political, every other things on the agenda has been just pushed away and it's just been dominated by Brexit, Brexit, Brexit and that is completely damaging to our politics. Yeah, I think even outside of a kind of looking at that politically, I think even people, so I obviously live close to the border and we do a lot of talks with schools and there's young people who I've met that have said, am I going to be able to go and visit my granny or am I going to be able to get to school in the morning because my bus crosses the border and I think all of those little tiny things that people are worrying about on a day-to-day basis is a massive impact, particularly on young people, because it's things that young people shouldn't have to worry about and shouldn't have to think about. They should be allowed to be able to freely travel to school. They shouldn't be worrying about not seeing their family. And definitely it's had an impact on everybody's life, I think. You're seeing now a less polarised nationalist, unionist vote. And you're seeing people actually look at alternatives for the, you know to give them hope in what the future of politics might be. And I think young people particularly are looking at you know labels such as nationalist or unionist and I think they want to move on from that. We've never lived through the past that Northern Ireland has had, where the children of the peace process and 
we don't want to be dragged back into that and I think now a lot more people are looking towards more progressive parties that are seen to not hold such value and attachment on the labels that potentially other traditional parties would have. What we have found is Brexit is something that impacts every single community in Northern Ireland and that is absolutely crucial to Northern Irish politics. Northern Irish politics is always divided along orange and green politics. Irregardless of what the issue is, same-sex marriage is divided in orange and green issues and for us we have seen Brexit just cuts across every it cuts across all communities and that's something it, it is very important yeah. we've seen a lot and there obviously is from certain parties particularly Sinn Féin have said that the only way to get out of this is to go for Irish unity I mean I've seen a lot of that come up I don't personally agree with it I would agree with the United Ireland at some stage but I think to throw another massive constitutional question on top of what has already been a hugely damaging democratic situation that we've had with Brexit would be the wrong time to do it but I think we definitely even in the last year have heard so much more in relation to Irish unity and it is something that obviously a lot more people are looking at now. I think before Brexit the issue of unity wouldn't have been on the agenda for at least another 10-15 years where now you see it is it's probably one of the top three in Northern Ireland on the agenda and I think that shows the complete the, what, what Brexit is doing to our politics it's pushing it's making people consider their identity making people consider where will I be better off will I be better off in a union of the European Union, which is with the, uh, with Ireland, or I'd be better outside the European Union and the Union with Britain. I'm Raymond Stewart from uh, Newton Abbey in County Antrim, and I'm retired, and I'm 64. And you told me you're a member of UKIP? Yes. And that you campaigned for leave. Why did you do that? Why did you think leaving would be a good idea? Because our borders need to be secured and also our trade and all these things that the European Union has taken from us by membership of the European Union. I notice you're wearing a hat that says Make America Great Again, one of those iconic red hats. Yes. Why are you wearing that? Because I support Donald Trump. Why, why he's do you doing a great job in the United States. What do you like about what he's doing? He's standing up for freedom and also, he's taken funding away from uh, abortion, and I'm pro-life, and I feel that that's the way the nation should go. And they're trying to bring abortion to Northern Ireland. I'm very much opposed to that. So that's one main reason I'm for Donald Trump, because he's for conservative values in the United States. Would it be about immigration as well for you? Yes. Yes, he's determined to protect America's borders and I admire him for that. We also have a border on this island. What's your hopes for the future of that border? I would hope that that border would still be open individuals. I can't see any problem with that. I feel that the scare tactics are being used by Leo Varadkar. Scare tactics and the UK has said it won't put up a hard border. The UK has guaranteed that, that it won't put up a hard border. It's the European Union that might put up a hard border. But you'd like some checks on, yeah. Yeah. on the border? Yeah, some checks. I believe that can be done. Are you not afraid that might destabilise things? No. Sinn Féin, of course, are threatening. Republic's coming! <laughs> okay, sorry. I get a fright when people yell, roar at me, sorry. Yeah. I get a bit nervous there. Sinn Féin are making threats, but that's nothing new from Sinn Féin. And, you know, I think there are good people in the Republic that admire what we want. And we can work together with the Republic if the Republic comes out of the EU. And there's movement in the Republic on certain areas that they want out. You think the South should leave as well? Yes. You wouldn't be in favour of build a wall? No. No. Absolutely not. Because I think trade and people move up and down so much. You know, I wouldn't want to make it difficult for anyone. The only people we want to make it difficult for are terrorists or illegal immigrants. Are you in favour of a no-deal exit on the October 31st? I feel that a no-deal a no would be better for us because it will give us more freedom uh, to trade and liberty in a whole lot of areas. We just had a guy come past us there and say that a republic is coming or something like that. You don't think that given the rise in support the polls have showed for United Ireland that possibly 
this has made things a bit less secure from a unionist point of view? Possibly, possibly. But again, that's up to our DUP politicians to stand firm on these issues. They know what the issues are. They know what an Ar a border in the Irish Sea means. And they need to stand up and not weaken. Uh, my name's Sean Dermot Kelleher. I'm uh, a 22-year-old law student in uh, Queens, and I'm from uh, Trillian County, Kerry. Uh, but I'm living up here in Belfast. Okay, so it was. I noticed the Kerry jersey just go by in a flash, and the roar of a republic is coming, or something like that. Why did you? Why did you shout that when I was talking to the uh, Leave supporters? To be honest, uh, it's a, it's undeniable. If you look at the polls. It's the whole situation about support, the support of the constitutional question is is changing. It's it's uh, the poll by Lord Ashcroft just this week showed 51 percent for a 32 county Irish Republic. The, demo, the only demographic that's in favour of maintaining the union is the plus 65 group, which are going to slow, which are going to diminish in the next 20 years. So demographics clearly shows that a 32 county Irish Republic is on the way. Yeah. And can I ask, what are the, the conversations that are, you're having with fellow students in Queens? Can you tell me what the atmosphere is there? Uh, it depends on what, uh, if I'm talking to fellow Southern students. Uh, we're nervous that we, we might, our, our rights as EU citizens might not be protected uh, which if we leave. Uh, so our fees might go up all of a sudden. A lot of us are looking for actually work, our plan to li live here full time after college like myself. And we're frightened that who knows an increased immigration law might prevent that also going home will become more of a <laughs> of a laborious uh, endeavor which is worrying me but my big fear is actually stability there's a vacuum with the lack of storm and there's been riots in Derry for the last few days and it's kind of terrifying to be honest Wow, so these clips show a pretty interesting range of concerns, actually. Um, I was particularly struck by the way that the two young interviewees there articulated how, depending on which passport they hold on Brexit Day, uh, they might end up with totally different rights, which, you know, really undermines the very spirit um, of the Good Friday Agreement in modern Northern Ireland. It's also pretty amazing, I thought, uh, to remember that some people who might be eligible to vote in a, a, an upcoming election of whatever sort it might be, um, were only 15 three years ago when the original referendum was passed. You know, that really puts a new perspective on, on arguments for a new vote. Yeah, and that's reflected in the name of their organisation, Our Future, Our Choice. So that, that was the organisers of the event and they are clamouring for a second referendum on the basis that they say that, you know, young people do not support this, which is what uh, polls indicate. It's worth saying that when it comes to the issues of rights as well, anyone who, for example, is a migrant who's come from somewhere else, and particularly people who aren't white, are vulnerable to changes like this. So across the UK, as many as three million people have to apply for settled status. And this kind of uncertainty is particularly risky in a place like Northern Ireland, a small territory which is close to a border, which is possible to even cross by accident. Now, we also heard a little there from that UKIP supporter you mentioned, who had his own anxieties about how the whole process is going. And I think there was a very interesting kind of doublethink in some of the things he mentioned, namely, you know, this very strong desire to close borders in order to keep out migrants, but also at the same time, an explicit sentiment of wanting to keep the border with the EU open, which I suppose represents positions that are pretty hard to reconcile. Yeah, I think this reflects different understandings about the nature of what an open border is or a hard border is. So for particularly for Irish people who live uh, on or near the border, any change at all to what it's currently like, which is invisible, is almost unthinkable. And it's understood that any change, any introduction of anything visible would be a deeply negative symbol and destabilizing. And that even the smallest bit of infrastructure has that potential to escalate into something greater because that's what happened before. Small customs huts were attacked and then they were fortified in response. The surveillance went up, the concrete and the barbed wire went up. Militarization was met with further resistance and so on. So that's one point of view. And then in contrast, for someone for whom an open border is not particularly important, so perhaps a, a unionist who might not live near it and might, you know, not cross it often or at all, 
it might be easy to imagine that any checks could be reasonable, that they could be limited and, you know, just just the rule of law, totally kind of reasonable things. To be frank, they might understand anything short of a moat and a high wall to be basically a soft, open border, if you see what I mean. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. It's I think it's interesting that I never really fully understood the um, the significance of how hard this would be until I was looking for it, you know, until that until a point where we were driving across the border and I was actively thinking about how on earth this could be closed. You know, before that, it, like, it, it's hard enough to imagine. Of course, while Northern Ireland as a whole voted Remain, the vote was split along community lines with a strong rejection of Brexit by nationalists and a majority support for Brexit among unionists. Now, Naomi, you've been recently writing about how loyalist communities are reacting to the situation. And while you were reporting from Belfast, you actually found yourself in a meeting with three former members of the Ulster Volunteer Force, um, a paramilitary group. Uh, can you tell us first, how did you end up in that situation? Well, I, I wanted to try to understand how the current situation appears to people who signed up to be loyalist paramilitaries in the past in order to try and get perspective on what the risk of violence could be from loyalist communities now. So there exist organisations that work with former loyalist prisoners as part of peace building, um, essentially bringing them in as leaders to use their influence to promote peace in their communities. They also get them help to try and transition into a new life in peacetime. So I visited Action for Community Transformation, which is on the Shankill Road. That's about 500 metres from the biggest peace wall in Belfast, the Cooper Row Peace Wall, which stretches up about eight metres high, separating the loyalist Shankill from the Republican Falls Road. This is a part of the city which has gates that close at night time, separating the two communities in order to prevent clashes between them. So, listeners, you might remember from our previous episode in Belfast that people like ourselves with southern accents and, frankly, a fair bit of naivety when it comes to life in flashpoint areas like this, you know, we can feel more than a little vulnerable um, when, when we're put into these situations. So, Naomi, how did you feel at that moment walking into Shankill? I had an appointment set up, so I felt like I had a certain legitimacy to be there. And I was extremely grateful that these guys were willing to meet me and, and, and talk to me about their concerns. Um, but I did arrive in a state of anxiety because there had been a road closure which had made me late and I was very afraid that this could be insulting to them. There was a certain amount of mutual wariness, especially at first, because, you know, I'm from Dublin. Like, as soon as I opened my mouth, they were kind of like, uh, where are you from? You know? Um, and then also they were sussing me out and assessing how what my motivations were and how willing they would be to talk to me and how how much they would reveal to me about who they were so there was a kind of a mutual sussing out period at the beginning which was uh, yeah wariness on both sides i would say so um can you actually tell us who they are not specifically so um they didn't agree to have their voice re voices recorded so I could only write down what they said. And they spoke on the basis that I wouldn't, I would only use their first names because if I identified them publicly, uh, it could cause problems for them because, of course, the issue of paramilitary involvement is pretty sensitive. So that was the condition under which they agreed to speak. But what I can say is they are three fairly senior guys who would have been paramilitaries in the UVF and spent time in prison for that. And my understanding is that one of them in particular was very senior. And nowadays they have quite influential roles still in their communities. So for example, in, in, in that particular community, there aren't very good relations with the police. So these guys encourage the local residents to come into them if they have a problem, and then they might call the police on their behalf, or they might mediate whatever the problem is to try and solve it just within the community. So that obviously gives them quite a powerful position, kind of maintains them as authorities in a way in the community. 
And they they credit this kind of work that they do with keeping everybody in line. And also they say this is the reason why there has been a reduction in violence at the interface with the Falls Road and at times at height, of heightened tension around marches and bonfires because they're committed to the peace and they're ensuring that everyone stays in line. Hmm, right. So like, this is actually a really interesting facet uh, of community divisions that we haven't really touched on yet. Um, so one legacy of law and order breaking down during the Troubles uh, was this tradition of paramilitary groups on both sides acting as a kind of local police in a way. Like It's a way, I suppose, of, like you said, both keeping control of an area by doling out you know, often pretty violent vigilante justice, um, and also gaining the confidence of locals who might, for whatever reason, uh, not feel that they can depend on the established police force. Um, it's something I saw coming up recently, actually. For the last uh, few months, or maybe even a year, there has been quite a significant public advertising campaign denouncing this activity and trying to get people to turn away from it. Uh, it uses the slogan, um, I quote, paramilitaries don't protect you, they control you. Uh, so for you, Naomi, uh, what was the most interesting thing you took from your conversation with these guys? Well, just to add to what you just said there, first of all, so according to the police statistics, uh, police attributed last year, for the most recent year, about 50 punishment beatings to loyalist paramilitaries, and about um, just a, they, they attribute a about a handful of shootings to them each year. And these are almost always, they're pretty much always targeted inwards towards their own community. So they kind of act as local strongmen. But there's this blurred line between what counts as a paramilitary and what counts as just a criminal gang. And if depending on who you speak to within loyalist communities, they might have different views on who's legitimate and who's just using the label or the brand of paramilitarism to carry out criminal activity. Um, so it's it's a kind of a nebulous area, but they continue to have a big role and to have certain structures in their communities. But at the moment, their, their violence and control is mostly directed inwards. Mm, right. And like a lot of the articles I looked at um, when I was researching this um, showed quite a significant, apparent significant proportion of people in those communities who were okay with this. And people, you know, who you wouldn't expect maybe like other policemen and nurses and doctors uh, going on record and saying that they thought that this kind of activity kept uh, law and order uh, intact. So it's, it's a very interesting dynamic. Yeah, this is a whole area of research for like post-conflict studies, you know, because you have to bring in pe- fighters and give them a role post-conflict. You have to involve them in the piece. But also, if you publicly fund some things that preserves or ossifies their status as authorities, in some way you maintain the power structures of the conflict. Um, so it's it's a tricky thing. And Northern Ireland is kind of an experimental zone in stuff like this that people are still trying to figure out. Right. OK. So anyway, I was asking you, what do you think um, was the most interesting thing then in the whole conversation? I think overall, the most interesting thing that I found from it was to really be talked through their perspective on how the peace process has gone. So they are all people who supported the Good Friday Agreement. Now they have serious reservations about it. And one of them even told me that if it was held these this like these days, it wouldn't pass. And unionists would see that they'd been sold a pop in his in his words. So essentially a, a strong reason why uh, for their reservations about it is that from their perspective, when they agreed to it, they were convinced of the deal by being told that this was a settlement that would put the whole constitutional matter about the status of Northern Ireland to bed and that there would be no more talk about it. But of course, the agreement made provision for a referendum on potentially joining with the Republic into United Ireland if there was ever majority support for it. And that just wasn't, I suppose, the focus of the agreement for loyalists. And now that there are lots of calls for such a referendum and even polls showing that, you know, it might pass or or narrowly or maybe one day in the future it might pass, that kind of changes things for them. They start to agree with the loyalists who never up this peace agreement. One of the reasons for opposition to it 
was a criticism that it kind of locked Northern Ireland into a process that only had one final conclusion, and that was unification. So for an indefinite amount of time, it would be kind of this temporary status of being as it is now. And then as soon as there was a majority, it would go to a united Ireland, and then that would be the end point of the process. It was also really, really interesting to hear from them um, how every step to include Irish culture and identity in Northern Ireland looked to them like a loss. And it also looked to them like a stealthy kind of unpicking of the place of Northern Ireland in the United Kingdom. And that they also saw things like historical inquiries and attempts to get justice as rewriting history. But how does Brexit play into all of this for them? So the issue of Brexit shows what a diversity there is among loyalists, which is really important to note because, you know, loyalists are often seen as having quite Uh, socially conservative right-wing views. And that is true in many cases, but they're also, of course, progressive loyalists. Uh, So they are diverse. And among this group, there was a diversity too. So two of them had voted leave and one of them had voted remain. And the remain voter described himself as being these days more of a unionist than a loyalist, so perhaps having softened somewhat in his views. And almost almost as as an aside, he said he actually cherished his Irish identity as much as he cherished his British identity, although he said Sinn Féin make it difficult for him to do that sometimes, which I thought was really interesting. He gave the reason for voting Remain as because he anticipated that Brexit would stoke tensions over the constitutional status of Northern Ireland. So he foresaw that. And as for the other two who voted leave, one of them didn't go into the reasons, but the other one did. And he explained it to me with familiar reasons. So essentially dislike of the EU, concerns about immigration, but above all, a feeling of wanting to give a kick to the establishment. Right. Okay. That's, that's so interesting. And I suppose it reminds us really that, you know, like we just keep kind of reusing these truisms that there's a strong leave vote among unionists and loyalists. Um, that this referendum, you know, it represents a totally different kind of political division. Another one, basically, that's being superimposed onto existing splits there. So, of course, it's not going to fit at all neatly. I mean, even less neatly than um, than than different layers of that before. Uh, so, did these guys have any preferred solutions? You know, how, how can they see in their minds that it could all be resolved? This is where the stakes get extremely high. So... Among loyalists, they have a very strong historical memory of betrayal. They see themselves as having been betrayed at various points by by London, by London politicians. They see partition as a betrayal because, you know, uh, the nationalists in the South were at war with with, uh, Britain and suddenly Britain appeared to capitulate to them. Um, they they list off other betrayals and actually did during this conversation list off other instances like uh, the Anglo-Irish agreement in, in, the, in the 80s and even Winston Churchill, all kinds of things. So they have this kind of wariness and expectation almost that they'll be sold out by London. So they're very, very hyper aware of anything that might in some way differentiate Northern Ireland from Britain. And of course... The backstop in the withdrawal agreement has been described exactly so by politicians, not just by unionist politicians, but also by Theresa May and Boris Johnson. Um, So it's actually been cast as a constitutional threat to the United Kingdom, even though its supporters say it's nothing of the kind. And having different regulations doesn't say anything about the constitutional status of Northern Ireland, because after all, there already are different regulations in Northern Ireland for lots of things. But that doesn't matter. You know, symbols are incredibly important to these guys. Um, That's essentially how they define themselves and differentiate themselves from the other community. So at this point, the the name of the backstop has become so poisonous, it's, it's difficult to see how it could ever be accepted by them. And this is where we got into the chat about the risks of violence. And I thought it was really interesting to hear the the oldest man, the most senior of them, break down loyalists into different groups. So he basically said there's the dinosaurs, they're the guys who won't accept the peace, won't move on. Those are his words, by the way. Then there's the guys like them who basically accept the peace and try and, you know, move on a bit. And then he, this whole other group, which he called the unknowns, and he put all young people into that group. And he said, essentially, what's missing here is one, leadership. There's no coherent leadership for loyalism. And two, 
uh, a kind of an offense that would unite everyone, some kind of threat to the union that would unite everyone to come out. But all of them said that the risks for conflict are very, very serious and the, definitely the highest that they've seen since the peace agreement. One of them, that, that older man, he said, I joined the UVF when I was 20. And if I was 20 now, I would be looking for something to join. Well, uh, of course, one place where we have seen tensions already breaking out is in the city of Derry, right? And this isn't just um, what happened to Lyra McKee a few months ago. There have been riots since then and up until quite recently in that same Craigan area. Yeah, um, so there's sporadic rioting going on still, uh, often involving very young people. And the combination of that with the uncertainty and the high stakes around Brexit, particularly as this prospect of no deal gets closer, it's affecting people in Derry hugely. I mean, this is a city that really is almost cut through by the border. I mean, there are suburbs of Derry which are across the border, really, in Donegal. So everyone who lives there is hyper aware of the stakes and, you know, what might happen to them in their daily lives. And I really got that that sense of, real worry and concern and also kind of um, uh, almost re-traumatization from remembering what the past was like, you know, almost being haunted by by the fear of a return to the past. When I spoke to Dr. Neil Black, so he is a consultant at Alton the Gelvin Hospital. He works on endocrinology and diabetes. And he explained that because of the disruption to supply chains that would happen, especially in the case of a no-deal Brexit with backed-up lorries and whenever there's a border crossing, the British Health Service is having to make contingency plans and buy months and months ahead to ensure supply of vital medicines for the people who need them. Of course, the, the the idea that they're even having to do that kind of work, the the, the even no, the notions of medicine shortages and people stockpiling, that's causing extreme worry for people who are reliant on them. And there's also this anger that, you know, why is this being done? This is totally voluntary. You know, this didn't need to happen at all. Not only no deal, but also even if there was proper planning, uh, you know, enough notice that this was going to happen in advance, then there wouldn't need to be all of this contingency. But in any case, that's the situation that there is on the ground. And it's very clearly a particularly destructive result of a failure in politics. So let's hear from Dr. Black. I'm Neil Black. I'm a consultant physician at the Elven Hospital in Derry. Um, and I live in the city. The early effects that we saw, even over the last year, we had shortages of some medicines, some critical medication for different treatments, like a, a particular hormonal disorder, um, and that would be regarded as life-sustaining therapy. And then the cost of certain selective medications went up, sometimes more than 10 to 15-fold. And this was a medication that was taken every day. No explanation for that. And what it came down to in those couple of cases was it seemed that there was something was disrupted in the logistics of the delivery of that medication. There were hints along the way that um, there was being selectively stockpiled at different stages of the supply line. And the end effect on the end user, which is the NHS purchaser, was a dramatic increase in price. Individual patients were stockpiling to some, de- to some degree, varied on the, on the medication, varied on the, the condition you're talking about. But actually we were seeing businesses involved in the logistics of delivery of those medications, everything from the manufacturer onwards, holding back um, elements of their, of their supply. The concern is, of course, that this will become much more generalised and much more, wide, uh, much more widespread, affect many, many more conditions and many more, many more patients. Hydrocortisone, this is a steroid replacement um, for people uh, with Addison's disease and other um, steroid-deficient conditions. The price of that medication went up dramatically. Then um, synactin, which is a, a, an injection you use to actually diagnose um, Addison's disease, became unavailable to us for a considerable period. And there's no proof of saying that uh, this was a Brexit effect, but we've never seen the effect on these two, two um, items before, never. We have had a warning from the Public Health Agency for insulin pump consumables. This is for people living with type 1 diabetes who use a a pump device to administer their um, insulin on a day-to-day hour-by-hour basis. We normally keep a couple of months reserve for each patient. We'll we'll keep those and order them in in advance so that they're not caught short. Um, If if that finishes, they will would be uh, unable to deliver the life-sustaining medication, which which, which would affect within the same day. Now, 
you can replace that by um, using insulin uh, injection pens. Um, but there's a massive difference in an impact on quality of life. And we have had concerns right the way across the UK, um, expressed very strongly on social media about the potential for insulin pen d- device supply as well. We, we know that um, quite a few of these medications, for instance, there's a particular company with manufacturers of this all in France. Uh, we know that some of the monitoring um, devices come from um, a factory outside Donegal. But the real concern was um, in some pump consumables, and the PHA advised us to advise our patients to keep a six-month supply in advance and to order that in advance, which is a significant logistical issue if we have an imminent Brexit in a matter of six weeks. If there's a large increase in demand for selective things, potentially the manufacturers won't be ready for it. Um, the stockpiles then will be used or held back variously to allow people, the end user, to stockpile them. But no company's going to release all their stocks. They're gonna, there will be a, a selective depletion in um, the end user's supplies until the point of Brexit when there actually are physical barriers. I think our patients trust the NHS, so they trust the fact that the NHS will do this, but they know that the NHS is dependent on the supplies behind that. General practitioners are seeing um, patients come through um, nervous, wanting, wanting more, and they have to tell them, look, we, we cannot give it to you. patient turns around and says, well, look, we could be left in several weeks, and I don't know if I'm going to get what I need. Well, at the moment, the Western Trust has two major arrangements across the border. The, the two major ones are primary PCI, or uh, percutaneous coronary intervention for heart attacks, and the um, Aldengelvin Hospital supplies that service for all of Donegal. And the second one is the Northwest Cancer Centre, which supplies radiotherapy services to all of Donegal, including uh, the, the trust itself. Because of the common travel agreement that predates the EU, we know there, there won't be a problem with people moving back and for, forward for their treatment. However, patients have already been ex- phoning up to express their concerns. If they don't know how secure that their travel was going to be you know, in the event of an emergency or for their regular radiotherapy. People have also phoned up with an assumption that they won't be able to get their care anymore. And uh, for someone living in Donegal who needs radiotherapy, of course, this is someone with an active cancer. This is either active, um, and the treatment is either active with curative intent or palliative intent. Um, having to get that care delivered from Inishowen to Dublin is a massive barrier and a massive drain on that, uh, that person's physical well-being compared to travel to, to Derry for therapy. It's fearful, for particularly for people living in this locality as a large population centre and a large healthcare provider right on the border. We can reassure them that the common travel agreement means that and the contracts between CELTA and the, and the Western Trust will continue to be active. But there are other things that are outside of control. That, that do concern us, and that's about delivery of certain consumables and, and medicines. Really, that's in the hands of UK government, um, the Central Procurement Services services in Belfast and then in, in, in London as well. And unfortunately, we will be hit uh, as badly as any other part of the UK if we can't get those things if we're across from Europe, but it is outside our control. We do have some concerns, even if they're quietly expressed, about staff who currently live in Donegal and other parts of the Republic who cross the border to work in the NHS daily. With Derry being the biggest population centre in the northwest, naturally it's a it's an economic centre and then lots of people come to work here. There were, there's a con- quiet concern that there could be significant enough delays that it's more difficult to get to work, for instance, or the economic screening that's going on if it's at the border then could slow those people down even because they're waiting in a column or a queue. Um, that certainly is a real concern. I have a lot of close colleagues who, who live um, straight across the border in, in Fawn or, or, or up the north coast of Donegal. Obviously if you have a, you know, a blue light ambulance flying across uh, the border from someone from Donegal to get to, to Altengelvin for therapy, we would expect that to have priority access across the border. But patients have expressed their concerns definitely on their ability to get across to get their health care, particularly vulnerable patients like those that are having radiotherapy. So, I mean, that is pretty chilling, what Dr. Black mentions there. Uh, like, I suppose as well, there is something very 
close to the bone for everyone about this because there isn't a person uh, anywhere who either doesn't have a health issue themselves or doesn't have someone very close to them who might have a health issue. Yeah, I suppose it's just, it's such a failure of politics because the aim of politics is supposed to be to make things better for people. And this is like, obviously, clearly making things worse. In our next episode, coming very soon, we'll hear more stories of people who are facing seriously high personal stakes from this big political game that's being played above their heads. Uh, We'll hear from a cross-border specialist about the reality of the impact on that dividing line across the island, from a man in South Armagh who was driven into activism because of his fears about a return to the days of the past, and from people who own businesses on how Brexit will affect them, their livelihoods, and the decisions they have to face to just stay afloat. Thank you so much for listening. And special thanks as ever to our wonderful sponsors, Biddy Murphy. Head on over to biddymurphy.com where you can find genuinely Irish goods made on the island of Ireland. Slán everyone. <laughs> <laughs>